Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Optimizing Jack Inhibitor Therapy for Patients with Myelofibrosis, Integrating New and Emerging Therapies into the Current Treatment Paradigm. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb. Hi, I'm John Mascarenas, Professor of Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine in Mount Sinai, and today we're talking about optimizing JAK inhibitor therapy for patients with myelofibrosis. This program is aimed at understanding the JAK inhibitor landscape for myelofibrosis and comfortably integrating them into clinical practice. So the NCCN guidelines for myelofibrosis and the treatment of intermediate and high-risk disease is stratified based on baseline platelet count, less than 50,000. Patients should be considered for transplant if eligible or procritinib to address spleen and symptom burden or always a clinical trial option. For patients with platelet counts greater than 50,000, first-line JAK inhibitor therapy is typically ruxolinib but could be fedratinib. And then if this is not effective, loss of response or primary refractory disease or intolerance to the JAK inhibitor, a second-line JAK inhibitor can be entertained, and that's usually an alternative JAK inhibitor, whether it be fedratinib or even procritinib, irrespective of platelet count. There are a number of prognostic tools used for myelofibrosis that can be used at the time of diagnosis or dynamically during the patient course that often include five clinical variables of advanced age, anemia, leukocytosis, peripheral blood blasts, and systemic symptoms. And in the DIPS Plus also includes unfavorable karyotype, transfusion dependence, and thrombocytopenia. These risk scoring systems are used to put patients into risk categories in order to provide a risk-adjusted treatment approach that's tailored to the patient's risk and treatment goals. Patients who have low-risk disease in large part can be followed with watchful waiting unless they have symptomatic splenomegaly or bone pain or another reason to intervene. Patients who have higher risk disease, that's typically intermediate two and high-risk disease, but even intermediate one-risk disease are frequently the patients that are in need of therapeutic intervention with a JAK inhibitor. Ruxolitinib is the first JAK inhibitor approved for patients with myelofibrosis based on the comfort studies. Here is phase three comfort one data demonstrating superiority of ruxolitinib compared to placebo, both in terms of spleen volume reduction at 24 weeks and symptom improvement at 24 weeks. Despite the very effective improvements in spleen and symptom burden with ruxolitinib, approximately three years into treatment, half the patients have discontinued therapy for a variety of reasons. And unfortunately, when patients discontinue therapy, outcomes are poor. So ruxolitinib has been critical to improving outcomes in patients with myelofibrosis. But in the next section, we'll discuss why, despite the promise shown by ruxolitinib in the comfort studies, treatment failure has been reported and considerations for second-line therapy are needed. It is now appreciated that there are a number of reasons why patients with myelofibrosis ultimately discontinue therapy with ruxolitinib, and this can range from a lack of initial response or loss of response to ruxolitinib-related adverse events, or in a quarter of patients, frank transformation to acute leukemia, which is titled myelofibrosis in blast phase disease. There are three factors that appear to predict survival benefit with ruxolinib that can be measured at baseline three months and six months that were determined in multivariable analysis from a cohort of patients in Europe. And this includes ruxolinib doses of 20 milligrams twice daily or below at baseline three and six months, splenomegaly reduction of less than 30% by palpation at three and six months, 
or the need for red blood cell transfusional support at baseline three and six months. These can be used in a calculator called the RR6, uh, which can be found online and can help predict the outcomes of patients in the first six months of treatment with ruxolitinib in terms of survival benefit. We know from the comfort studies in the pooled analysis shown here that patients who were randomized to ruxolinib upfront compared to those that crossed over from the control arm or those that were projected to continue on the control arm in a rank-preserving structural failure test had an improved survival and that despite the fact this drug does not induce pathologic remissions or complete molecular remissions, improvement in performance status and reversal of cachexia likely lead to that survival benefit. Ruxolinib is an important addition to the armamentarium of the treatment of myelofibrosis, affording our patients symptom and spleen benefit. However, the durability of that response can be limited by loss of initial response, toxicity, or frank transformation to acute leukemia. Therefore, second-line options and considerations are required. And in the next session, we'll discuss the upcoming approved and late-stage emerging JAK inhibitors. The next section will address efficacy of JAK inhibitors beyond ruxolitinib. There are two approved JAK inhibitors for the treatment of myelofibrosis beyond ruxolitinib. That includes fidratinib, approved in 2011, and picritinib, approved in 2022. Both drugs are JAK2 inhibitors that spare JAK1, but also target FLT3. However, picritinib is also known now to target IRAC1, ACVR1, and CSF1 receptor as well. A third JAK inhibitor is in late-stage testing and likely to be approved in 2023, and that's mamalotinib, which is an equipotent JAK1-2 inhibitor, as well as ACVR1 inhibitor, and has effect on anemia that has driven its development. Here I'm showing the phase 2 Jakarta 2 open-label study of fedratinib second line after ruxolinib, in which a third of the patients enjoyed spleen response and a third of the patients enjoyed symptom response at 24 weeks even in patients with platelet counts of 50,000 to 100,000 or greater than 100,000. So this was an option for patients who had either resistant or intolerant disease to ruxolinib as a second-line JAK inhibitor to afford spleen and symptom benefit in this setting. Pacritinib, the third JAK inhibitor approved based on the PERSIST-2 phase 3 study shown here, was in a patient population of myelofibrosis patients with platelets less than 100,000 who may or may have not have seen prior ruxolinib. The control arm was best available therapy, which could include ruxolinib. The spleen volume response rate was superior at 24 weeks with picritinib, 200 milligrams twice daily compared to BAT, and was nominally superior if patients had seen ruxolinib previously. Importantly, and based on the label, this was seen in platelets less than 50,000, which is now where the drug is approved for myelofibrosis patients with less than 50,000 who have not seen a prior JAK inhibitor or second line irrespective of platelet count. As mentioned, mamalotinib is the last JAK inhibitor in late phase testing. Here's the phase three momentum study, randomizing patients to mamalotinib versus danazole after ruxolinib exposure who had spleen symptom and anemia burden. The primary and secondary endpoints were met, and I'm highlighting here the anemia responses that were seen in which 31% of patients remain transfusion independent at 24 weeks with mamalotinib compared to 20% of patients treated with danazole. So it is clear that all the JAK inhibitors have demonstrated efficacy in patients with myelofibrosis, and there may be specific niches in which these drugs are best utilized. In the next section, we'll discuss the key safety signals for these JAK inhibitors. Next, we'll review the safety profiles and considerations for the JAK inhibitors. 
Fedratinib, which was evaluated in the phase two Jakarta 2 study, is a very potent JAK inhibitor. Therefore, it is associated with treatment-emergent anemia and thrombocytopenia that is similar to what is seen with ruxolitinib. The most common serious treatment-emergent adverse events were pneumonia and pleural effusions that occurred in 4% and 3% respectively. It is important to realize there's a black box warning only with fedratinib due to a concern for Wernicke's encephalopathy. Therefore, one should check a vitamin B1 or thiamine level prior to initiation of fedratinib, and then every three to four months subsequent to that, or simply put someone on a multi-complex vitamin B supplement. This is rarely a reason for concern. It is also a FLT3 inhibitor, so there's some GI toxicity, which is mostly low-grade in the first one to two months, and easy to manage. Rarely a reason for discontinuation. Pacritinib is also a JAK2 FLT3 inhibitor, also associated with low-grade GI toxicity within the first month or two. Again, easy to manage with an antiemetic and antidiarrheal, and rarely a reason for discontinuation. The drug was put on a full clinical hold for a period due to concerns regarding toxicity and mortality. This was eventually lifted. There does not appear to be a cardiovascular concern associated with pacritinib, but perhaps a bleeding concern that's irrespective of the depth of thrombocytopenia, with grade 3, 4 bleeding events seen in 14% of treated patients compared to 7% in the BAT arm. Therefore, per label, one needs to evaluate on a case-by-case basis the use of pacritinib in patients with active bleeding, a known bleeding diathesis, or a known coagulopathy. Mamalotinib was a safe drug as shown by updated safety in the open-label extension phase of the Momentum study. There were grade 3-4 treatment-emergent hematologic abnormalities such as anemia and thrombocytopenia, which are seen across the JAK inhibitor space. The, the notable grade 3 or worse treatment-emergent adverse events were acute kidney injury and pneumonia that were similar to what was seen in the Danazol group. This is, in general, a well-tolerated drug, and an initial concern of peripheral neuropathy was not seen in this momentum study. So overall, this class of drugs is well-tolerated. They have toxicity profiles that are differentiated, such as GI toxicity due to FLT3 inhibition with fedratinib and pacritinib, Wernicke's for fedratinib, and increased risk of bleeding for pacritinib. Pacritinib is most notable for being less myelosuppressive to the platelets and mamalotinib to the red cells. In the next section, let's discuss how we can utilize these JAK inhibitors in clinical practice. In the next session, we're talking about integrating JAK inhibitors in the treatment paradigm for myelofibrosis. So in JAK inhibitor-naive patients, the decision-making for JAK inhibitor therapy is based on symptom and spleen burden and then refined on the platelet count. So platelet count less than 50,000 by label is pacritinib, 200 milligrams twice daily, for patients with platelet counts greater than 50,000, there are two options, ruxolitinib, which is traditionally used first as there's more data and longer use with ruxolitinib. Also, there is data based on Jakarta 2 for fedratinib as a second-line agent after ruxolitinib, in which we don't actually have prospective data for ruxolitinib after fedratinib. But having said that, the label is open to either drug up front. And for patients who have red blood cell transfusion dependence in the context of significant spleen and symptom benefit, mamalotinib may be an option available in the future. Another consideration for patients who have significant symptom and spleen burden requiring a JAK inhibitor and also have anemia is the use of ruxolinib or even fedratinib 
plus Luspatercept, the active in ligand trap. This is a drug that's approved for lower-risk transfusion-dependent myelodysplastic syndrome, but can sometimes be obtained off-label and in clinical trials for patients with myelofibrosis and ongoing anemia, despite spleen and symptom benefit with a JAK inhibitor. In the second-line setting, one has to determine the definition of ruxolin failure, which can change or differ between clinical trials and patients. This can be worsening of initial spleen response or lack of any substantial spleen response that's still linked with symptom burden or, frank, worsening of symptom burden or treatment-emergent toxicity like worsening cytopenias with the first-line JAK inhibitor. So although there isn't really a great unified diagnosis, it's one of those aspects when you see it, you know it, but you must be aware of and continue to follow the patients closely in order to identify failure in some regard with ruxolitinib. If the patient has a platelet count less than 50,000, that's straightforward. It's percritinib. If the patient has a platelet count greater than 50,000, particularly to address ongoing spleen-related complaints, fedratinib is an excellent choice. One must consider the switching. I often will get patients down to about 10 milligrams twice daily on ruxolinib and then even overlay the two drugs for a couple of days before stopping ruxolinib and making sure the patient has prophylaxis for GI toxicity with fedratinib as well as checking thiamine levels. For patients who have anemia, one can consider mamalotinib in the second line setting as well once that's FDA approved. And then as a non-JAK inhibitor option and consideration in the future, based on ongoing randomized phase three study called the Impact MF study, the option of imetilstat, the telomerase inhibitor, may be a drug to consider when overall survival is the goal or even bridge to transplant as a definitive therapy. However, that's a discussion for another day. There are a number of different JAK inhibitor-based combination therapies, whether they are for patients who have advanced disease like accelerated blast phase disease or in attempts to address anemia, and many of these remain in clinical development and testing. So there are many different options for treating our patients with JAK inhibitors upfront based on need, platelet count, ongoing cytopenias, and in the second line setting, which is first dictated by identifying failure, whether it's intolerance, refractory disease, or relapse disease by spleen or symptom burden, or ongoing cytopenias that would dictate whether one can move to procritinib, fedratinib, perhaps mamalotinib in the future, or non-JAK inhibitor-based therapies dependent on the goal of therapy. I'm very optimistic about the future of myelofibrosis treatment and happy with the JAK inhibitor selection that we have at hand. However, the next generation of trials will evaluate combination JAK inhibitor-based therapies. And stay tuned for that. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you found this informative. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.